all you that didn't clap, I'm so disappointed that you don't love Jesus and you don't want to welcome him into the world and, you know, give him your best, but we'll, we'll work on you. So I'm starting a Christmas series, uh, actually the whole month of December, and it's called A Family Life Christmas. And, and uh, you know, it's a challenge for me because, you know, every Easter, Christmas, these things like that, I've done now 19 of those here at Family Life, and I'm always trying to come from a different, different angle. And uh, so I, hopefully I've done that. I, I just, I really want to get you to, to, to think outside of, you know, the commercialization of Christmas, outside of commercials and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I, I love the, the Christmas season. It's a time of warmth, literally. It's a time of warmth in Texas. You know, it's a time of, you know, really what it's represented. It represents spending time with family and friends, giving gifts, you know, just as God gave us his son Jesus and family traditions. It, it's, you know, in my family, we always make it a priority to help other people uh, who may not, you know, have a good Christmas season without that. And, uh, but really for Christians, it's about focusing on the birth of our Savior, that during this season 2,000 years ago, God sent his son into our world in the flesh. It's just an amazing story of God sending his son into the world. And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, for many years, probably the first 12 years of, of my marriage to Tracy, she loved Christmas, and she called me the Grinch every year. She called me the Grinch, you know. And uh, I said, well, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that. But what, what bothered me was I, would, be, I was, would sometimes be so bothered by what society does with Christmas that it took some of my Christmas cheer away. I mean, I just hate it when I'm driving down the road and, and I see an Xmas sign. It's everything I can do not to go jerk it off the fence or wall or post. And so if you ever see something about me getting arrested for tearing down signs, it's true. Just pray for me. Post my bell, you know, just help me out there. But, you know, Xmas and just the greed, when you see the greed and Christmas has become a season of give me, give me, I want, you know, and, and, and just, just the secularization of, of Christmas. Um, but I had a thought many years ago, and the thought was just, just because culture and society has gotten the Christmas season wrong, it, it does not, it does not diminish the celebration of Christmas or what happened at Christmas or what Christmas is all, is all about. It's an, an amazing uh, story for Christians. Really, it's a celebration that, you know, God sent his world, his son, into the world for the redemption of our sins, that our sins can be taken away, that our sins can be cleansed, that we can be in right standing with God, that we can have a relationship with God that for so many years was blocked, an intimate relationship because God sent his son into the world. And so, you know, every Christmas we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, coming into the world. And it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. Uh, but in actuality, many of us, when we think about Christmas, we think of 2,000 years ago with Joseph and Mary and, and the, the trip down to Bethlehem and Jesus being born in a manger. That's what we think about. But I, I want to give you a thought this morning. Actually, the Christmas season, God sending his son into the world, uh, that story goes all the way back to Genesis. You know, he said, I didn't see Jesus in Genesis. Well, let, let, me, show you, let me show you this. If, if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, now, what has happened here, the devil in the form of a serpent has gone in, and, and really he just deceived Adam and Eve. They ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. They rebelled against God. Now sin is in the world. 
Everything has changed. They had a perfect world, a perfect garden, a perfect relationship with God. All that's changed now. Sin has put a barrier between Adam and Eve's relationship with God. And, and look, at this is the first prophetic messianic prophecy in the Bible in Genesis 3.14. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity. That word enmity means hatred. I'll put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Look at this. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so the, the thought was this, is that the enmity, the hatred between the serpent or the devil and woman was because one day a Messiah would come born of a woman, Okay? And so when it, when it says this, he will crush your head, that's talking about the resurrection. The resurrection is when Jesus rises from the dead and he just crushes, he defeats, he defeats totally once and for all the devil. But it says you will strike his heel. Satan striking Jesus' heel was the cross when it looked like he had won. And so this goes all the way back uh, to, to Genesis. And for hundreds of years, as you read the Old Testament, for hundreds of years, the prophets have been predicting the coming of a Savior, the anticipation of a Messiah. And many of the Old Testament prophets like, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Micah, and David in the Psalms, they have been predicting the coming of a Savior into our world, but not only his coming, very specific details. So again, the Christmas story, it's happening in Genesis 3, and, it's, and, it's, and there's prophetic uh, prophetic utterances throughout the Old Testament, uh, very specific. You know, things like the place of his birth, that he would be born of a virgin, where he would live and where he would grow up, how he would die, his resurrection, and his purpose for coming into the world. All of this is prophetically known before Jesus is born in a manger. So the story of Christmas was a story of promise and anticipation all the way from Genesis when sin first entered the world. From the very first moment that sin entered the world and broke our relationship with God, God had a plan. God had a strategy that I am going to send my son as a savior to the world. And as a matter of fact, if uh, it, just in the life of Jesus, there are 300 fulfilled biblical prophecies uh, that, that, that were fulfilled through the life of Jesus. And, and there was a mathematician one time, a brilliant mathematician, that calculated the probability of 300 prophecies that were spoken Seven, eight hundred years before Jesus was born, being fulfilled in the life of one man. And, and the number he got was one followed by 181 zeros. The probability, you know, of that. Just really, really incredible. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the fullness, the fullness of time. How the Christmas story, when you think about it, when you celebrate Christmas, uh, you know, with your family and and, and I don't care if you put up a tree, I don't care if you put up lights, but if you're a Christian, you should celebrate Christmas because it, it, it started, it's, it was the start of our redemption. Jesus can't uh, be crucified on a cross for our sin, he can't be raised from the dead if he doesn't first come into the world. And so it, it was the beginning, and, and, uh, but again, what many people do not consider in the Christmas season is that God was very strategic about when he sent his son into the world. He could have sent him at any time. He could have sent him, uh, you know, 100 years before he did or 100 years after him. 
So think about this. Why did God send Jesus into the world at the exact moment he did? In Galatians 4, chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us, it says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So when the fullness of time had come, when the, when the set time had fully come, when the time had arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent Jesus into the world. And again, so when the timing was perfect, when the conditions were exactly right for Jesus to enter our world, basically when the natural realm lined up with the spiritual realm, God sent Jesus uh, into our world uh, for, our, for our redemption. And I want, you, I want you to think about this. How many of you have ever gone to grandparents' house or your, your, your parents' house, and they have some type of a family heirloom? Well, my granddad, my dad's uh, father had this pocket watch, you know, that guys used to wear way back, you know, it put around here and put it in your pocket, and it would, it would pop up, and it was a gold-plated. And you know what? My granddad would show it to us but he never let us play with it. You know, we were all waiting for granddaddy to let one of us wear it around for Christmas. But he never did. He never did. And, and he, as a matter of fact, when he died, it didn't even go to any of the grandkids. Right? They, grandkids shouldn't get... Well, what? why? Because that was an irreplaceable, invaluable uh, family heirloom and, and yeah, it was actually worth a lot of money if you took it to a shop to sell. But the value to the family and the memories, this was my great-granddad's passed down to my father and my, you know, down the line. It, it had incredible value. So, so, th so think about this with me. It was the same way for God. Jesus, sending Jesus into the world was a one-time deal. He wasn't going to send him down and say, oh, it's, it's not right. Let me bring you back and send him back later. God is, he's in, he's in heaven, he's on his throne, he's watching the earth, you know. And when everything was perfect, when the world was right to receive Jesus, basically when Jesus would have had the biggest effect upon the earth, God says, hey, it's time. And he sent Jesus, uh, in, you know, into, into the world. And, and so perfect timing when the conditions were perfectly aligned. So hundreds of years have passed. And at, the, at this perfect time, Galatians says, when the time was perfect and when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world. Now, as humans, it's almost, I'm scared to say, I'm scared to even say this because some of you are going to look at me. As humans, it's, it's hard to ever think about achieving perfection, isn't it? I'll, I'll prove it. Ladies, how many of your husbands are perfect? Saying no hands went up, God. No, no hands went up. Now, if I ask the husbands how many of your wives are perfect, a lot of hands go up. That's just because you're scared. That's just because you're scared, okay? But so when the, think about this. When the time was perfect, you know, God sent Jesus into the world. But humans, we have a hard time, you know, trying to reach perfection. As a, as a matter of fact, not only is it impossible for us to reach perfection because of, of our imperfections, it's near impossible to have a perfect day. I mean, think about this. How, how hard is it to have a perfect day? Not a good day. A, per, a perfect day means that you have no financial problems to consider. 
all of your kids are doing well, all of your relationships are good, your work is perfect, you know, there's no traffic going to and from work, your neighbor, your neighbor's dog didn't use the restroom in your yard, I mean, there are a lot of things to achieve perfection. I mean, imagine the man, a man went to work and, and, and he had the perfect day at work, and he thinks, the perfect day is in reach. But, but it, it, it's only 5 o'clock. So he gets in the car, and would you believe it? Traffic parted like the Red Sea parted for Moses. And it's just, it's a free all the way home. And he pulls into the yard. He's like, oh, it's a perfect day. But he walks into his house. Now it's 5.30. And the kids have been on a bender all day. And your wife is not happy with your kids, and she's demanding the rod of discipline, and your house looks like a bomb went off, and your wife tells you, I've had enough, I'm going to my room to take a hot bath, you take care of dinner, you take care of kids, you do the whole thing. Well, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. But, but I, I mean, I'm tr what I'm trying to get you to understand is, if you look at the whole history of time, God said the day that he sent Jesus into the world, everything is perfect, the conditions are perfect. They're right for the gospel, uh, you know, to spread. It's just an incredible thing to think about. And, and so when we think about the Christmas season, it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It, it was something that was been, been in the work since Genesis 3. All the prophets predicted it. And then God, in, in his infinite wisdom, he, he released Jesus into the world at a, at a, at a, perfect, at a perfect time. So I'm going to give you two observations on God, just, just to think about some things about God. First of all, when you read the Bible, when you pray for your life, when you think about your life, I want you to understand this. God always has a plan. He always has a plan. Now, many times we don't understand the plan. Many times we're whining and complaining, and we call that a prayer life. Right? We're whining and complaining about God, you need to step in. God, you need to do something. But God, God always has a plan for history, for the church, and individually for each one of our lives and for our families. God always has a plan. And the second thing is this, is that God is always patient. He is patient. What he knows is if, if I intervene too early, if I do something to help them before they really need help, if, if I give them something just so they don't have a little bit of pain in their life, instead of working the character of going through this, you know, I, I would hurt them. So God is always patient, and he always has a plan. And 2 Peter 3.9 says this, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, so God is patient in helping us, in, in, in giving us the help and, and hope that we need, but he's also patient with us because... We are who we are. How many of you are thankful that God is patient? See, sometimes we're Christians, we're thankful that God is patient with us, but we don't want God to work patiently in our lives. Two different things, but God is patient on both, on both examples. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning uh, talking and showing you how the world was prepared for a Savior, how all the factors had lined up, and and what we're going to see is that they had lined up politically, they had lined up economically, they had lined up morally, and they had lined up spiritually. So let's talk about this. It was, first of all, it was the fullness 
of time politically. And what was the political situation like when Jesus entered the world? Who was in power politically? The Romans were. It was, it was the world was, was under the dominance of Rome. I mean, Rome had conquered, had literally conquered the world. It was a unification of the world under Rome. And that was Caesar's achievement. Uh, so think about this. The day, if you think back in the, in the old ancient days, there were different kingdoms, and every time you came to the edge of one kingdom, there were, there were barriers, there were problems between the two. But when Rome literally wiped out the world, and the Roman banner, the Roman standard, the Roman flag was being held in every province and every village across basically the, the, known, the known world, uh, what that says is all of the national barriers were down. They were all down. The world had been unified under the Roman standard. The day of closed frontiers was over. The day of separate, self-sufficient nations was done. And it's really an incredible geograph geographical region all the way from the Atlantic to the Caspian, from, from Britain to the Nile River, from uh, Hadrian's Wall to the Euphrates. The Roman banner could be seen everywhere. So all of the opposing barriers were down. The world had been consolidated into one community. Basically, the world had become one neighborhood. And so political unity, basically there's a one-world government. It produced, it produced three main benefits. First of all, there was peace. There, there was peace across the world. And, and someone says, well, Terry, I thought that the Romans were just bloodthirsty. They were when they conquered nations. But after they conquered a, a nation, um, they, you know, and the, and the people surrendered to them. They let the people live in peace, and and, and really, really, the uh, I guess the um, all of the the violence and stuff had you know, kind of kind of gone down a few notches. So basically, they united everything, and this brought tremendous peace. So basically, there were no more wars, nation against nation, because Rome had conquered everyone, and everyone was under uh, the, the the rule of Rome. So it, it, it released peace into the world at that time. And uh, so think about this. If Christ would have come a century earlier, if he had come a century earlier, the gospel would have been blocked at every turn. They would have been blocked on, on land by national frontiers. They have been blocked on the ocean uh, by pirates that made the sea impassable. Or if he had come a few centuries later, uh, he would have found civilization too preoccupied uh, with the terrible struggle against the barbarian hordes of the north. But Christ came to a generation that was experiencing a time of peace. The second thing that the Roman Empire produced were great roads, incredible roads. If you go to Europe today, you can go to many places all over Europe, and some of the Roman roads that were built 2,000 years ago, they're still there. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can Google it and look at them. And I mean, they, they so basically uh, what, what Rome did is with all, with all of their slaves, you know, basically Roman engineering and and literally hundreds of thousands of slaves, they, they built roads all across their empire from one end to the other. And why did they do that? They, they did that so that their troops, so that they, they could drive horses and buggies and march troops at straight paths all the way across. But what did it also do? It, 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 what it meant was that everyone else could now travel. Missionaries could now travel from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. There was free there is free travel, so you have, you have peace. There's no more national boundaries. Everything is under road. 
Rome, the world, it's wide open, and you have roads that lead to everywhere. It, what's, what's, what's quite interesting is, if you have any of you ever gone to a city uh, that didn't plan anything out? Have you ever lived there? You know, like, you know, here we have loops and everything. But some cities, I remember when I, when I first moved to, moved to Lafayette, and I'm not, not downing Lafayette, but I'm saying, like, you, there was no straight roads, like, across there. You had to go, wah, wah, had to do a big, had to drive 40 miles. If there was a Roman road right there, you'd get there in about two and a half miles, right? And, and so the roads produced an incredible thing. The third thing, so there, there's peace, there's, there's no war, everyone's under Rome. There's roads, you can go everywhere. Uh, the, the third thing, though, uh, was, of course, there was a, now there was a common language. And believe it or not, the, 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 the language the language of the Roman Empire was Greek and Latin, believe it or not. And so uh, while all these little villages and all these different nations and towns had a different dialect, everyone spoke Greek. Greek was the common language. So now, now any missionary, think about Paul. Paul evangelized the whole Mediterranean world in about 15 years. How was he able to do that? Because there was one language. There was one language. And now think about today, one of the big areas of evangelism on the map, and the world map, is the 1040 window, where there's about 5 million people in there that have not heard the gospel. And they've been working on this for about 20 years, and there's so many different languages, they're, they're having to learn languages to make Bibles for that language. So the world at that time, under Rome, there was one common language, and so it was the fullness of time politically. Politically, there was... Uh, there was no battles. Everything was under Rome, so there was a common language. There were there were great roads. There, you know, there was um, there there was peace, of course. But the second thing was it was a fullness of time economically. And here here's something that we need to think about. Beneath the luxury and the magnificence of Rome was unrest and poverty. And uh, you know, I've I've had the pleasure of, of of going to Rome twice. And you know, when I go there. It's, you know, it's still Rome proper. It still has the, the, the brick paved roads that was, that was how the Roman Empire was. And, and even today, all their buildings are just huge. They're massive. And, I, and I, thought, I thought the first time I went there, I'm like, man, what would it have been like if you were a slave somewhere and you came to Rome and saw that? It was, I mean, it's impressive today. Way back then, it was even more impressive. So basically what happened is, Rome, everyone they conquered, they brought the best of what they had, marble, gold, money, special things, back to Rome. So Rome, uh, especially the, the leadership of Rome, had unprecedented wealth. But most of the people in the Roman Empire were, had unrest and poverty. Two of every three men on the street of Rome were slaves. Made me think about that. It's un incredible. So mere property or goods. And in many of the provinces and districts of Caesar's dominion, the, the economic situation had reached a point of crisis when Jesus entered the world. And it was like that in Palestine, the, the disastrous aftermath of the war, the, the colossal extravagance of Herod the Great, the burden of taxation. Uh, really, it made the and the overpopulation of the area made it almost impossible uh, for people to grow enough food. It just made it impossible almost for people, for, for people uh, to live. 
So it really it was a time, it was a bleak, it was a bleak time in history that Jesus came into. And I have a question for you. Just an honest question. You can you can think about it. Uh, do spiritual revivals come more easily in times of economic prosperity or in times of economic depression? Well, I'm going to go with economic depression because anywhere in the world right now that has great affluence, the influence of Christianity is waning. And anywhere where you go, where I mean, there's just dirt poor, terrible conditions, Nepal, India, the gospel is just exploding. And why is that? Because if you don't have enough to eat, if you don't have medicine, if you don't have care, if, if there's no one to help you, uh, you're willing to put all your, all your reliance, you know, a, a, upon God. And I believe, I believe the breakdown of, of human resources, I believe in this bleak time, Jesus came with a message of hope. He came with a message of life. He came with a message of abundance. He came... Uh, you know, again, with the message of, hey, if you don't have enough, my God can multiply what you need. I mean, this is the world that Jesus came into. Then, of course, it was the, the fullness of time morally. And uh, obviously, it was, it was a, a world that was, that was really sunk in moral hopelessness. As Paul describes it, I'm, look at Romans one twenty eight. Paul is describing... Uh, He's writing this letter to Rome, the, the Christians in Rome. And this is what he says. He says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Uh, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. Uh, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are, they are gossips. Gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So, I mean, if you think about that, I don't, I don't think Paul here, I don't think he left out too many sins there. I mean, you know, I, I, think, yeah, I think it's pretty well covered, you know. And, and I think if you look at that, wow. This, this is written to Rome, you know, in the first century. I, I think this pretty well also is an indication of the world we live in today. Um, so w when the morality of the people falls into wickedness, it, it brings just a darkness and a heaviness, you know, on, on people, on entire culture. And so here, here, this is what Rome had done because, you know, uh, Rome knows that the people are hurting. Our people are hurting. Our people don't have enough food to eat. Our, our people are just, have been the toll of our kingdom, our empire, and building our empire is just taking a toll on people. So they started, they tried to start games. They started games everywhere. They started games at the Colosseum, you know, and uh, watched the gladiators kill Christians in the morning and animals at night. I mean, and, you know, you load up in the Colosseum and we give everyone free bread and free drink and and uh, that, was, that was their answer. That was their answer. Their answer to be hurting economically was, we're going to fill them with, with immoral fun, basically, is, is what, he's, what he's talking about. And so Jesus entered a world into which people were just hungry for hope and light, a place that was craving salvation. And, and of course, I believe it was not only the fullness of time politically and economically, 
you know, and morally, but I believe it was, it was the fullness of time spiritually. And I believe, I believe there was a, a new spiritual hunger. Uh, you know, when you've tried everything and it doesn't work, and, you know, we've conquered the world and that didn't bring happiness, you know, we've, we've tried games that didn't bring happiness, I mean, that didn't bring fulfillment. Uh, and if you, this is quite interesting, too. What happened was, of course, in, in Rome, there's a pantheon of gods. I mean, you can still see the building there. I mean, it was full, it was full of gods. And, and after Rome, and the Roman people had tried all of the gods that, that Rome had worshipped and it didn't work, they started bringing gods from the Far East. They started bringing all these gods of people they had conquered and brought them in, you know, trying to, trying to, 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 to fill the gap. And, and uh, you know, ba- basically... Basically, you know, the, the philosophers in Rome started joke that Olympus, you know, that's where all the supposed gods live, that Olympus was overcrowded because they put so many gods in there. And they brought so many gods back, and, and so they, they imported a whole brand new batch of gods from the east, and uh, that still didn't work. And then they started Caesar worship, where the emperor literally became a god. He became divinity, and that didn't work. And, um, you know, the, the, the thought is this, if, if, if you're hurting, it doesn't matter how many gods people tell you to worship, if they don't bring peace to your heart, if they don't bring hope to you, if they don't bring light to you, if they don't bring fulfillment to you, uh, you know, then, then really they're, they're not of, 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 much, of much use to you. So when every god that could possibly have been worshipped didn't touch the 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 heart the hurt of the human heart and this is where Jesus came in when there was spiritual hunger when there was spiritual hurt when all the gods of the world uh, you know just just didn't work and and through this time of course there was always a spiritual uh, religious Jewish Jewish remnant that was always just you know letting people know that one day God is going to send His Messiah and they're praying for the Messiah to come and. And they, 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 you know, they've been conquered by Rome. They don't have anything. And, and, and I believe it was into, the, into this hungry, this spiritually depleted world that, that Jesus came. And we see as Jesus just went around, around Israel, as he went around places, that the hunger was so great. And why, why would thousands of people follow him? Why would they wait? Why would they follow him up a hill? You know, why would they make their way through crowds to see him? Because they had no hope, and they started hearing, they start hearing messages or testimonies of people, you know, that Jesus has touched, and he's changed their life, and he's filled them with hope. And so into this world is the one that, 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 that Jesus, Jesus came. So he entered a world that was prepared for him. It was, it was you know, political, political unity brought peace and roads and a common language. Uh, the economic hardship made people just desire to seek something different. You know, the, the immorality of the day. I mean, when you've done everything, you know, it's just, it didn't work. It didn't bring peace. It, that brought about the, the spiritual, spiritual hunger. And now I was thinking about this. I think sometimes the Christmas story, you know, I, I think that it really applies to us today. I believe in America. I believe in Europe. 
we, we have imported just about every God there is. Now, we're not bowing down to idols like they do in some worlds. But, I mean, think, 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 about, what, think about what people you interact with every day worship, what's really important to them. I mean, we've worshipped ourselves. That didn't get a big amen. I mean, really, we've put ourselves, our happiness. I mean, the world's telling us, you just do what makes you happy. That did not make us happy, okay? I mean, we've tried pleasures. We've tried hobbies. We've tried sports. We've tried money. We've tried affluence. We've tried power. We've, we've tried pre prestige. We've, we've tried all of that. But look, we've tried education because that will really help you. And look, look where our country is at today. Look where the modern world is at. I, I mean, think about it. Today, suicide rates are higher than they've ever been. Well, what, why is it? Because we've tried everything that people tell us should make us happy, and it doesn't make us happy because what we put our faith in wasn't the truth. You, you know, and when we tried money, you know how many millionaires commit suicide every month? I mean, it, it, it's just incredible. But, but we have, our, our, it's almost like our society is, is, going, is going out of control. As a matter of fact, um, in America, almost all these situations are right except economically. Economics is the one thing that's holding back tremendous revival in America. Is, isn't, it, isn't it funny that, it, you know, you hear people say, well, if the money is good, we're okay. Like, like money, like money can, can save us. But I'm telling you, the spiritual conditions in America are changing. And, and when I talk to people, I, it, I understand what some of the news and some of the liberal people, what that thought is maybe about the Bible and God. But I, I'm, I'm around town all the day, and people come up to me. And there, there's a spiritual hunger. There is a spiritual hunger. My, my family's left me, you know. You know, my, my, my wife is sick. There's a spiritual hunger uh, that, that I believe is, is starting to grow. So I believe our world is spiritually hungry for a Savior, someone who can transform their lives, someone who can bring peace, someone that can bring hope, someone that can bring fulfillment and love into our lives. And, of course, that someone is Jesus. And, I, I, you know, I think, I think that we, I think one of the biggest problems of the, of the church today even Christians that love God and are doing it, we're not very bold in sharing Jesus. We're, we're, we're not, we're, we, we've become passive. And what I'm saying is, you know, don't be a jerk about it. You know, don't stand at your office door when people come in and tell them they're going to hell. I mean, that's not very good. It may be true, it's just not very useful, right? But I mean, look for opportunities. When someone comes in and they look depressed or discouraged, Go talk to them. Go talk to them and just encourage them. Man, I've had that problem too, but you know, when I met Jesus, that turned my life around. I believe that people don't want to be converted to a church or religion, but people are hungry to meet Jesus and someone that can help their lives. And we're not about religion. We're about a relationship uh, with Jesus. And, but when you think about Jesus coming into our world 2,000 years ago, when you, I want you to think about that this year. Whenever you, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Eve, whenever you start really focusing and get your family together, just, just really think about the fact that Christmas wasn't an accident. It just wasn't a good day or a good season for Jesus to come. It, it was the perfect time. It was a reminder that it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision, uh, you know, by God. 
he waited patiently for thousands of years until just the time was just just the time the perfect time was there and 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 i believe i I really believe this i believe people ask me this all the time about about the end times and i think i'm going to do a series on the end times here the first part of next year just there's a lot of questions to answer a lot of questions from the bible but people always ask me a question you know, what's going to happen to the church or what's going to happen before Jesus comes back? And I, I believe this. I believe two things are happening. I believe the church is going to get smaller, but I believe it's going to become much stronger. I, I believe that. I believe that the, in the end times, I mean, before Jesus comes back, I believe there is going to be just an incredible revival in our country. Where, in other words, Jesus isn't just one of the things that's important to us. He becomes the number one thing. Don't we need that in church today where there's a focus on Jesus and where we're not just declaring him publicly, we're living him every, every, every day of our lives. So I, I believe that's coming. I believe this year. I believe if you really pray, I believe God's going God's gonna to give you people to talk to just to share the love of Jesus. I believe, wouldn't that be awesome if everyone in this room led someone to Jesus this next year? You know, there's people that we're in contact with every day who would love to know why we have hope, who would love to know why we're not depressed because it's not about us. We have a Savior. We have Jesus. And the next thing I was thinking about is this. You know, there may be someone here today, there may be several people here today who, you know, today is the fullness of, day, fullness of time for you to receive Jesus. You're here today because Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to come into your life. And, and uh, in a room this size, I'm sure there's some here that have never established that relationship with Jesus. Can we stand together? We just, just bow your head and just allow the Holy Spirit to, to allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to your heart and your life. You know, the implications of this story about the fullness of time, it really, if you think about it, 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 it's not just about Jesus and Christmas, but it's also about our lives, that everything that's happened in our lives has happened happened for a reason. Even the bad things that have happened to us, God God has, is going to, He can use those to help other people, to benefit people, to help other people through bad times. God, we just thank you today, Lord, when we, we, we think about Christmas, God, Lord, we have a broader view today that it wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. The, the pr- prediction, the prophecy was back in Genesis and your people predicted all the way through that when the, when the fullness of time had come that you were going to send Jesus in, into our lives. And we're just so thankful for that. God, we're thankful that we serve a God who doesn't do things by coincidence, who doesn't do things by accident, but does them with, because of a purpose and have patience, God. You know, church, if there's anyone here today that would just say, you know, Terry, I've never given my heart to Jesus. But I know today is my day. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to serve Him. I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. With eyes closed, would you just slip that hand up if there's someone like that here today? 
Well, God, we come before you, and we, we just thank you. For, it's the, the start of this Christmas season, God. And we just, we just believe that you're going to use your church not just to celebrate Christmas Day, but God, but, but, but to share Jesus with the people that are around us by word of mouth and by how we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey guys, if you could help us this morning before you leave, help pick up the chairs, I'd be grateful. And for all of our visitors, I'll be out there.